we're back. The year is 2020. I don't see any flying cars. I haven't seen any aliens. Is the moon real? Is it fake? I have no idea. Growing up as a kid, I watched the Jetsons, and that's the world I thought I would see by now. I feel like we're a little late, but it's all right. The year's just starting off, and I bring to you a very special podcast. I wanted to start the year off right. I wanted to set the bar high, so I hit up Sonny from Hate Five Six, and he was down to do the podcast, and I couldn't be any more happy with the way that it turned out. It was a great conversation. I had so many weird little things that I wanted to ask him that have been sitting in my mind for so long, so I was really happy that I was finally able to sit and talk with him for so long. It was great for me. And I'm really happy to finally be able to share this with all of you. So without further ado, welcome Sonny to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Sonny. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, this is um, really awesome to, uh, to have you on. I'm really stoked that you were down to do this. And I just want to say I really appreciate all the things you do for hardcore with 856. I, I think it's just like an amazing thing for the community. And uh, I just hope people don't take it for granted. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's, I'm, I guess I'm like entering my, well, this is my 11th year now um, going into my 12th. So yeah, it's been cool to see it grow and see how people have been responding to it. Never, never, never imagined it getting to the, getting to this point. Yeah. And I, I was thinking back, um, to like, like my early days of knowing about hate five, six, and it was definitely around, um, I, I think it had to been like late 2009. Cause I remember, um, stumbling across all your, uh, this is hardcore 2009 videos and mm-hmm. me just, um, tripping out, um, over the quality, um, of the live sets and the fact that, um, I was able to see uh, a lot of bands, um, from that fest, you know, through your platform that I, at that point I had never even seen live. So I, I just remember like, you know, just going and just watching all those videos on Vimeo and just like, uh, just like trying to just like soak up everything. And there's like a few sets that stood out to me that still stuck out to me to this day. Like I remember it was, uh, the carrier set, the singer threw up on stage and <laughs> I, I thought it was like the weirdest thing. Like, I'm, I don't think the crowd like really like reacted to it. Um, but like it was, that was like one weird thing to me. And, um, I remember at that point too, the, there was like some weird drama with the Mongoloids and Greg did like a little speech before their set. I, I just thought that was like really funny. Yeah. It's, it's, I haven't watched a lot of that stuff in a long time. So you're, you're mentioning this stuff and it's slowly coming back to me. I remember the, the, the vomit incident with the carrier may have been a different, was that, this is hardcore. Cause so the, the singer of rival mob definitely throws up in their, this is hardcore 2011 set. The carrier, yeah, I remember the, there was an incident with the carrier. I, you might be right. That might have been this is hardcore, or I might be mistaking it for like 
like one of their Massachusetts shows. But either way, yeah, there's there's so much stuff in the archive that goes way back. Um, I'm I'm curious, how did you do you remember how you found out about the site? Because I mean, 2009 was like early. Day, I mean, that's like largely when the traffic started coming in. But that was before that was like basically pre Instagram, pre before I think it was before I was on Twitter. So do you remember how you actually came across the site? Was it just through like Bridge Nine Board or something like that? It, it was either because um, I, I was on the B9 back then. Um, it was either through that or just through Google, just like me, just like trying to scour the Internet for um, you know live sets of bands that I hadn't seen before. OK, yeah, because, again, even back then, I mean, I was only on Vimeo, um, hadn't done anything on YouTube yet. So just like the the way that discovery works has always been interesting for me, especially back then, because you know, that wasn't really pushing much on social media. It was mostly just by word of mouth and trying to get results to show up, um, through just proper indexing when people were searching on, on Google and stuff like that. So yeah, I was just curious how, how you came across that, but that's cool. I was always curious, um, why you chose, um, Vimeo is the platform in the beginning. Yeah, that was mostly for two or a couple reasons. So the first first was that back then Vimeo's compression was much better than YouTube. Um, so just the way that for anyone who's listening who doesn't know how online video works is you know you have your original audio, you have your original video recording, you have to export it into some sort of um, format, whether it's like MP4 or whatever, whatever something like that, um, and then that that needs to get uploaded to uh, a streaming site and they do a, they do a, another, uh, round of encoding that makes it actually playable on a browser. So back then, uh, the way that Vimeo was encoding videos was much better than YouTube, just in terms of the, the visual quality. Um, I've just found that Vimeo was superior. The other, the other part of it was, um, Vimeo had a better API. So, API is basically like application programming interface. So anyone who's a, anyone who's like a developer or programmer knows what an API is, but basically it allows someone with coding experience to really or easily integrate in with like a third party application. So Vimeo has an API um, back then. They ha- I mean, they still do, but back then I was using the API to build the actual hate five, six site around it. So when you were on hate five, six back then it was pulling data about my videos from Vimeo through their API. So, you know, nowadays I think YouTube's compression is probably on par, if not better than Vimeo. Um, they do have an API. I still find Vimeo's API a little bit easier to use, but now in the, the modern hate five, six site is using both Vimeo and YouTube. Um, so if you're on the site, you actually have the option to choose whether you're streaming from either or and I've now integrated both APIs into the site. So now you have like a whole, it's a better well-rounded site that uses, that's able to leverage the data that's available from both. And, you know, it's everything from um, how many views of the video have to the actual metadata and things like that. So uh, back then at the time, it was just, it was, it was a better quality visually. And it was also just easier for me to quickly build the site around Vimeo than it was around uh, YouTube. And you mentioned your website. I, I do find that interesting that you give uh, the viewer the option to pick um, the streaming, whether it be through YouTube or Vimeo. Uh, I, I'm just really curious. Why do you give that option? Um, I, I know that you uh, have a, a lot of your videos on um, YouTube now. And uh, was there ever a time where you just wanted to push all the traffic to YouTube and just stop with the Vimeo? Yeah. So 
At, at this point, the reason that I keep both is mostly for security. So if for some reason my YouTube channel, YouTube channel ever goes down, everything can fall back up, fall back on the Vimeo channel. So it's, it's just a level of redundancy that I just for my own peace of mind that I keep and vice versa. If uh, Vimeo goes down, then I have the YouTube channel. So everything that's on Vimeo is now mirrored on YouTube. So it's, everything's identical except for some like non-show content. Like if I ever do like a band interview or just like, like some sort of high, uh, highlight recap video reel that will be on the YouTube channel, but not on Vimeo. But basically, um, I think some people have better playback experience on Vimeo and some have better playback experience on YouTube. So I gave viewers the option to, to select both. Now, I think that a large number of people are just watching the videos natively on YouTube just because there are people are, they're on YouTube more often just by watching other stuff. And then they might pop over to a hate five, six video and then pop out. So people aren't on the actual hate five, six site as much anymore, which is for me, unfortunate because I spent a lot of time uh, building it and I still spend a lot of time updating it. And there's also a lot of tools on my site that you don't get on, on YouTube. So on my site, you have like Sage, which is the AI band recommend recommendation app. That's only on hate five, six and not on YouTube. The actual Hate 6 search engine, I think, is better than YouTube specifically for finding my videos. So you can go on my the Hate 6 um, search engine and quickly find all the videos from the same show, all related videos from the same band. Um, there's a set list generator. There's a um, there's all others. There's all additional kinds of features that I've that I've quote coded into the site. So I'm, I've been trying to just drive more people back onto it. And that's been a bit of a challenge because people again are more inclined to just be on, on YouTube. So, um, and the way that the publishing works or the way that the video deployment works is, um, you know, I'll basically, I'll film a show, I'll edit it. Uh, I'll keep it private. I'll basically first upload it to Vimeo and I'll keep it private on there. And everything on, everything on hate five, six is now, is now, automatic in the sense that, um, I've democratized the process in such that like, I don't decide what videos get released every day. It's all controlled by viewers through a voting system. So what happens is every morning, um, the hate five, six server will look to see what videos have the top most votes and it'll lock the maybe top two or three videos in and at 11, and then at 11 AM and at 4 PM and then 9 PM, it'll release one of those videos. So what happens is, um, the server will unlock the video from Vimeo. It'll add it to the hate five, six database. It'll automatically tweet it and post on Facebook that it's been released. And then the next step in the, in the pipeline is that a second server downloads that file from Vimeo, then re uploads that to YouTube. And then that server will basically pull all the metadata, you know, the, the date, the show date, the show location, things like that. It'll pull that from Vimeo and then copy that over to the, uh, the YouTube channel. And then the final step is the hate five, six site will then it'll then use the YouTube API to pull the, the YouTube link from YouTube and then index it, index that as well. So it's a multi-step process. And the only reason for that is just, that's just how the site was kind of naturally built. It was first dependent, first dependent on Vimeo, but now that I'm using YouTube, I kind of have to, I'm kind of just, I've kind of decided to stay within that pipeline. So the process is goes on Vimeo first. And then a few minutes later, it'll get added to YouTube and they both get merged together and then appear, um, together on the actual hate by six site. So that's largely how it works. And if, if I wanted to decouple it, I could, but it's going to, it would require really changing the entire 
back-end engine. <laughs> and right now I don't have the time or energy to do it. And um, part of me is like, why fix something that's not broken? And I mean, and even if even if people aren't really using Vimeo, it, it is, again, providing me that level of security. And also everything's kind of working, so I really don't want to go back and, and rework it. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So you kind of broke yeah. down the process on how um, the videos get released. Um, has that process ever failed? Like the second server not taking the right data from Vimeo and uploading up the right stuff, or did it ever just like you know finish like half the process and it just not appear on YouTube? Have you ever had any trouble? Yeah, so, yeah, that, that happens sometimes. Um, so for example, I just posted a video this morning. It was um, the Agitator Ten Year Reunion show. So that that just got posted like maybe it was supposed to go up an hour ago at eleven a.m. Mm-hmm. And what happened? What happened was it went all, it went live, and I don't really watch. You know, I'll edit a video and then I'll export it, but I don't really watch it once it's exported. I just assume it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. So what happened was at 11.01, I checked the site to just to make sure that it went up. And the link got tweeted. It posted on Facebook. Everything was fine. But then I play, I started playing it because um, there's there's another step in the process where I I have an app that I built, which will allow me to automatically extract a like 60 second clip from an already uploaded video. And then I use that clip to then post on Instagram. So what I was doing was I, at 1101, I went on the site to create my clip. And I noticed that the, basically the, the title was fucked up. The logo, the logo faded in at the wrong time. So it was, there was a bit of a delay. So I said, fuck. So what I, what I had to do was I had to log onto the second server and it was in, it was in the process of downloading the file from Vimeo and then it was about to get ready to upload to YouTube. But I basically had to interrupt that because I didn't, I didn't want the messed up version to get uploaded to YouTube. So I had to like intervene. I had to, I had to kill that um, program and then I had to, you know, keep it on hold while I re-exported the video on my desktop. So basically uh, just right before I took this call with you, I had this, the new version of the agitator set uploaded to Vimeo and I resumed that second script on my server, which then downloaded the proper version. And now the proper version is on YouTube. So yes, things do go wrong sometimes, whether it's, you know, sometimes it's user error like me where I'm, I, I didn't export the video properly or, um, there might be some sort of, you know, Vimeo might be down for a split second and the server isn't communicating with it. So it can't actually download it. So that's not as frequent, but it does happen. But I do get like an email notification that like says, Hey, something's wrong. It's not, you know, it's not downloading the file or the file's not being uploaded to YouTube. You might want to check on it. So I have certain measures in place that that kind of notify me when things are going wrong, but there are instances where it might take me an hour or two to realize that something, (laughs) that something didn't go right. Yeah. So you just um, caught the logo being off because you're going to go create that clip. But if if you weren't creating that clip, you would have had to figure that out like later in the day that it was messed up. Yeah, I'd have to figure out later. And honestly, I might not have even noticed it. I mean, sometimes some of my sometimes my viewers will be like, hey, like this title is wrong or you forgot the logo or this this is off centered here and they'll let me know. Uh, But I think it's at a point now where people don't they don't tell me because they think I will catch it. Um, so there might be other mistakes in the site, just like, uh, um, not, not using, not that like I use the wrong logo or maybe I like, I didn't fit because I'm very, I'm very particular about the aesthetics of it. So, um, and how things fade in and fade out. So there might be a case where it fades in like a second at the, but like, uh, the wrong second, for example. But I think for the most part, everything is pretty good. I, I, 
when I'm creating the clips, I do check the first like minute or two. So I'd say for the vast majority of the videos, everything is, is probably, is probably fine. But, um, yeah, there, it, it, it does stress me out when I do find out about a mistake, like hours after the fact, because it means I have to backtrack. And if I have to re-upload the video, it means it's not accessible, um, at least on Vimeo. And then re-uploading on YouTube is a, spe- is a separate hassle because at least with Vimeo, Vimeo allows you to replace a video. So I don't have to change the links and I don't have to change like the unique ID associated with the video. But for, for YouTube, they don't allow you to do a replace. So if I if a video gets uploaded to YouTube and that link gets tweeted out and people are sharing it and I have to replace it with a new version, I have to delete that video and all those links that got shared are, are dead links now. So that becomes a problem where uh, I'll catch a mistake after it's been, after it's been uploaded to YouTube, I'll upload the new version, but then people are being directed to the original <laughs> link. And then I have to tweet, be like, Hey, make sure you're pointing to this one instead. So that becomes a big, uh, a big headache sometimes. Okay. And, uh, going all the way back to, um, the website, when you first had the idea to create the website, was it always um, the goal to make it so, um, user friendly? Cause there's so many things to do on the website besides just watching videos. Um, I, I like all the extra tools to, you know, help, uh, you discover new bands. Um, you know, you have the merch and all these other things linked. Um, but I, I feel like people should go to, to the website and check these things out because I don't think there's anybody else doing what you're doing, especially with the uh, tools to create the gifts and the clips and literally like the amount of sets you have archived. It's just amazing. Yeah. At the time I, I wasn't planning on building all these additional tools. I just wanted to, I just wanted like a central location for my work. And I didn't, if you look at, if you go on like the Wayback machine and like, I mean, I mean, you've been to the site, so you, you, you might remember how it looked back then. Like it was not as clean as it, as it is now. Uh, it was a little clunky. There was no search engine. You kind of had to like scroll through a bunch of like thumbnails to get to the video. Um, so over time, Kate, I say, I mean, when I built it, I had just finished, finished college and I was, I was like, wait, I was basically applying to jobs in the tech world and, you know, waiting for my, my first career to start. Um, so for me, it was just a way to stay on top of my coding and learn how to do some basic web web development. So at the time, that's that's what it started out as. And and over the last 10 plus years, it's been a way for me to dive into it more and be like, oh, you know, I want to learn how to build a um an a recommendation app. Like, let me do that and then let me learn how to build a, the actual integration into the site. So it's always been a playground for me to learn how to do some new tech thing. Um and as, as I'm adding more and more and more stuff to it and I'm seeing the value, like, again, I see the value of it and the average person might not. Um, but I, I'm constantly trying to drive people back to the site because I feel like, again, even though it's, I mean, YouTube, YouTube is great for a lot of things. Um, YouTube is responsible for a lot of newcomers discovering hate five, six or discovering hardcore through YouTube's recommendation. Um, their system, the, the way that they recommend videos is a great way for people to discover hardcore and hate five, six in general. But I think that for someone who's already plugged into it, I think that the site is much better. And I have a couple of ideas in, 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 in mind for 2020 and I have, like what I want to add to it to add more to the user experience. Um, but yeah, I'm at, at the time. No, I, I wasn't really thinking of it as more than just a repository for quickly finding videos. Cause again, everything that's on the site 
you can find on just by logging onto Vimeo.com, but I wanted to have a central site where people could come in and quickly just sort through and uh, navigate to the video that they wanted to find. Uh, and again, over the years, I've been just trying to refine that process and make it easier to um, uh, for people to find exactly what they're looking for or find a related video and, and things like that. Yeah, I, I definitely love the fact that you can search up a band and it'll um, show you every set that you have of theirs. Because sometimes I get years mixed up. Uh, like I, I love the Twitching Tongue set from 2014, um, but sometimes I can't remember if it was from like 2015 or 2012 just because um, it was so long ago. But I, I definitely love the fact that I can just go there, type in a band's name, and you'll show me every set that you have from them. I, I think that's like really convenient. And it's kind of crazy, too, when you like look back because... Um, but for me, like, like to have been around for so long and just like thinking back, like, holy shit, 2014, that, that seems like ages ago, like we're about to be in 2020. So just being able to watch something from that long ago, I, I think is awesome. And the fact that it's so easy to find uh, makes it better. Yeah. And I think that um, as we get older and I mean, there's probably going to come a point where I'm not able to go to shows anymore. And I think that uh, I think as we get older, it'll be. I'm hoping people will realize like, oh yeah, all the time that was spent building it, building the site back then, uh, was, you know, served a purpose. Cause I think as you know, there's going to come a point where, um, I, 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 I can't predict whether YouTube will disappear or not, but I think that for me, I'm going to get to a point where I'm going to really value all the time that I spent on it. Cause when I'm, when I'm 60 years old, 70 years old, and I want to find that specific video from that specific venue, I can just go on the site and type it in and I won't have to sift through, um, YouTube search results. So for me, I'm hoping that, um, in time, those who don't really see the value of it will eventually come to understand, um, why things were done the way they were. I had a question about uh, Sage. Uh, when you go to use Sage, um, it will ask you what bands you like or what bands you hate. Um, I would always leave the um, field for bands I hate blank. Does that affect the search results at all? No, it, um, actually, yeah, it, it, it does. So what Sage is doing is so Sage has learned um, basically the context of, of a band. So, so for, so basically what Sage built, this might get a little technical and I don't know if you wanted to go down that technical route in, in this, in this talk, but I'm happy to do it. No, let's do it. Um, I'm down. Okay, cool. So, so Sage is built on an algorithm called word to vec that was basically developed by Google. And I think like 2011, so word to vec, um, is basically, you can think of it as an AI that learns the contextual meaning of words. So, you know, for example, Google is really interested in certain, like helping people find, um, um, relevant documents when they search for it on, on Google. So they really want to know what words mean. So if I, if you type in, um, um, bank in Google bank has several meanings. It could be a river bank. It can be a monetary bank and things like that. You know, there, so words can have multiple meanings sometimes. So what Google wanted to do and what they still are constantly working on is really understanding what words mean in their context. So if I say riverbank, you know, that's not going to be a bank that you go to deposit money. Or if I, if I, if I, if I say, if I say, um, if I say the sentence, I'm going to, I'm going to this, the bank and then I'm going to go to the grocery store. You can probably infer that the meaning of bank in that sentence is more like a monetary bank 
and not a riverbank. So they're using the context of the word, they're using the context of the word in the sentence to figure out the meaning of that word. So what Sage is doing is it's trying to learn the context of a band within the context of other bands. So Google has this really fascinating result, or the I should say the author of Word to Back has a very fascinating result. Um, when you train that algorithm on like um, millions of words of English, so if you feed it um, like a bunch of like books or web pages written in English, it learns the contextual meaning of those words. So what they found was, and uh, I'm going to quiz you on this, see how well you understand what I'm explaining. Um, like they've basically allowed you to do mathematical operations on words. So if I, it, the, 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 the famous result that if you look up words of ec, you'll see this in the literature is if you take the word King, the word for King and you, um, subtract the word man and add the word woman, what do you get? So think about it. Think about, take the concept of king, remove the concept of man, add the concept of woman, what do you get? <laughs> the first word that comes to my mind is queen. Exactly. So yeah, and that's crazy. If you think about it, and what they've basically found a way to do by training this AI algorithm, this word to vec AI algorithm, is they've basically found a way to take a word which doesn't really have a mathematical meaning to it, but they've been able to find um, a representation of it in a mathematical space so that you can do a mathematical operation on it. So that's kind of crazy when you think about it. So the, they have other similar results. Like if you take um, um, Paris and or, or France and you subtract Paris and you add the word uh, United States, you get Washington, D.C. So it's basically, it's, it's, it's become a way for them to do um, like, operations on words that also retain a semantic meaning to them. So in that second example, like if you take a country, remove its capital, then add another capital you get, or at a, at a country, you get that new country's um, capital. So in that, in these examples that I'm providing, like, so if I say King minus a man. So king is like the positive word and man is the negative word. So when you're using sage, it's a similar thing. Like if you say, I like code orange, I like twitching tongues, but I don't like nickelback. You're doing that same thing. You're saying, what do I get when I take code orange and I add twitching tongues, but I subtract nickelback. So you're going to get a different answer than if you just added code orange and twitching tongues, because what it's doing, it's sort of shifting the context of what you like based off of what you don't like. Okay. So I should be entering in the field for bands I hate. I shouldn't be leaving it blank to help grow it yeah, better. Well, so you'll, you'll, you'll get accurate results based off of what you do like. Um, like that's, you're, you're not getting bad results by not including what you don't like, but when you include things you don't like, you get a more refined result. Okay. So it's sort of like, sort of like adding things you like will put you in the ballpark. But if you really want to like focus in, then adding things you don't like will sort of narrow that down to even more finer grained. But it's not perfect because, you know, pe people have very, uh, a very varied like palette when it comes to what they listen to. So you might, you might think that, 
you know, taking code orange and subtracting, let's say, let's say you like code orange, but you hate, um, minor threat, for example. So you like, you like the metallic, the metallic hardcore, but you don't like punk. So in theory, what that should do is that should, that should give you more bands that are like more on the metallic side and less on the punk side. But there are cases, and I, I mean, I haven't searched for this specific example, so I don't know if this will work or not, but there are similar cases like like that where, you know, people who like Code Orange, a lot of them might also like Minor Threat. So what you're essentially doing is saying, um, you know, it, they're, they're, they're almost too similar in the sense that if you take one and you subtract the other, you're going to get zero. And that's when you start getting really weird results. So there are cases on stage where you'll you'll enter in things you like and things you don't like, and you'll get like, stuff that doesn't make sense it'll be like some you'll 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 be focused on hardcore bands but you'll get like a reggae result or you'll get like a country result and it's because sage kind of like shits the bed at that point because you're taking two things that it thinks are really similar um and you're kind of like nuking them you're like you're kind of canceling them out so in theory um in theory if sage has if it's if it has a if it's able to learn from a lot of data it can learn those nuances and and again there are i think for all intents and purposes, it has learned a lot of those nuances, but there are cases where you'll add something you don't like and you'll think that it's dissimilar from what you like, but Sage thinks it's very similar and you're basically subtracting two things that are identical and that kind of, that kind of like destroys it or kind of it, it goes haywire at that point. I look at something like Sage and I, I think it's like an awesome tool, especially for um, people who are like looking for new recommendations or just trying to find just, you know, new stuff or bands that they, um, you know, they could stumble upon, or upon bands that they didn't think that they would like. And they actually come to find that they do like it based on some of the results. Because um, I see it all the time on Twitter. Like, you know, people are uh, even on Instagram and um, people asking like, oh, like um, send me some new bands to listen to. To, but I, I look at something like this. I'm like, oh, they could they could easily come here, type in you know a couple of things they like, a couple of things they don't like, and they could you know just have like a whole list of things that they have like you know things to have to dive through because obviously it takes time to try to listen to bands and figure out if you like it or not. Um, so so I, I think it's like a, a really awesome thing, and I feel like more people should be talking about it. Yeah, it's funny because uh, it's there was a sticky on the hardcore subreddit where people, uh, there's a sticky thread basically like, Hey, don't ask for recommendations. Just go use Sage. And I think people started ignoring the sticky cause it's, it's something that you kind of just naturally gloss over. So there's constantly threads on there. where like, Hey, I like bands X, Y, Z, what should I listen to? And other people are doing it now, but for a while I was just linking directly to Sage and now people are linking for me. Um, I mean, nothing's ever going to replace asking your friends or asking a human what to listen to. And I'm not, I don't think Sage should ever replace that human interaction, but I think Sage at least is a good starting point, especially for someone new, um, who's just trying to discover hardcore. Or like if you're just trying to get, if you're already within hardcore, you know what you like, and you're trying to just like find things in that are adjacent to it. I think Sage is a great first place to, to begin with that. And you use that word adjacent. Um, you also had a, a tool, um, adjacency. Yeah. That? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Adjacency is still on there. I mean, that was like the precursor to Sage. Um, in a way, Sage is Sage is like Sage's AI that's trained on a lot of data. And it's based, it's essentially trained on the adjacency data. It all comes from the same place, but yeah. Um, that adjacency for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically like a, you can think of it like a social network graph. So you'll see a bunch of nodes 
which correspond to bands and you'll see a bunch of like lines or edges connecting the nodes. And that's meant to give you like a visual representation of what bands are in like the neighborhood of a certain band that you're interested in. And is is all that data um, still being pulled from last FM? Yeah. So it's, it's not continuously pulled. Basically every time I want to add some new stuff to Sage, I'll, I'll re I'll like, I'll use again, going back to what I was talking about with an API last FM has an API that makes it easy for me to grab new data. So if there's a new band that got added to last FM, that's not on Sage, I'll, I'll have to retrain Sage. So that process is basically I'll, I'll use the last FM, last FM, last FM API to grab all the new artists that have been added. Um, and then it, it'll take Sage a couple hours to basically learn from all that data. Um, but that's that's the process. But I, I haven't updated it in maybe six months or more. I don't. I haven't had time. So, the data for Sage and, and adjacency right now it's 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 kind of kind of old, and I'm I definitely need to um, do an update. When I um, hear Last FM, uh, to, to me that's like something like I didn't even know people were still using that. Um, is it possible to um, pull from like Spotify or Apple Music? I don't know if. Spotify makes the data of makes the data that I need available. Um, so I agree. I think Last.fm is getting outdated, and I don't know how many people are still using it. Um, I'm I'm in the process of slowly figuring out if I could use something like Discogs. So for example, Discogs probably. I mean, it definitely tracks what people own. So like, if um, you know, I could potentially use that data to to um, augment the data that I'm pulling in from last of them. Cause you, if you think about it, like if you have, um, or if someone has an account on Discogs, it'll list all the records that they own. And that can, that kind of acts as a proxy for what that person likes. So that's essentially the type of data that I need to, to train Sage and, and to build adjacency is like list of bands that specific people like. And from that Sage can learn those relations between, between bands. So theoretically, um, I could get that data off Discogs. And I think obviously I think Discogs is something that a lot of people are using and, and updating and they're updating regularly. So that's certainly something that I want to uh, look into sooner than later in terms of how do, how can I, how can I bake that data into, into the apps that I'm building? Yeah, for sure. Cause um, I, yeah, maybe a spot like Spotify and like I wouldn't want to provide all that data because I, I obviously like we see it at the end of the year, like people, you know, posting their um, wrap up or whatever they call it. And everybody's like showing their numbers. So I feel like um, they are tracking the data, the data. So like um, it would be cool if they w- did give people access to it. Yeah, I think that the uh, I think with a lot of the tech companies now, what makes them valuable? I mean, everyone has access to the same algorithms. Like I said, I'm, I'm using Google's word to VEC to build Sage essentially. Uh-huh. Um, but what makes a tech company valuable is the data that they own. So they're very protective about what they give and how they give it up. So I don't know if, I mean, I could probably get some downstream data from some, from Spotify, like, you know, cause Spotify will tell you if you like, if you like turnstile, you might like, this, you might like angel dust. So they'll tell you that, but they probably won't tell you or tell like any, like they probably won't make it available, um, to download people's listening habits. Cause that's, that's what that's, you know, that's the data that they use to, to make their money. So I, I kind of need that upstream data, that sort of, um, raw data about what people are listening to and less about what Spotify thinks other people, what thinks, 
bands sh- should be similar. So for me, it's about getting the purest data and not de- not not building my not building Sage on top of like Spotify's predictions because I think that would run into not I don't think it would run into like proprietary issues. I think it would just run into uh, quality issues in terms of um, um, predictive capability. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe it might actually help. I, like I said, I haven't really done it, but in my head, I'd, I'd much rather work with the raw raw data available if it's possible yeah for sure because i feel like that's like the, the cleanest way to look at things instead of having them like cherry pick stuff yeah okay uh i obviously love like a lot of the videos that you film um but there's one video that you did i can't remember how long ago it was but uh, you're in japan with uh, jesus piece and you did like a little cribs video. I, I I thought that was like like pretty funny. It wasn't that long, but just like seeing like behind the scenes stuff like that. Um, I, I think it's cool. So um, you know, you uh, having access to that and um, making a, a cool video like that, I, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to do more of that because I think I think that's now that I now that I'm able to like go on tour with bands and. I have that access. I think, I think it's something that people want to see because people, you know, everyone, the people, people know Jesus piece, but they might not know Aaron and know that he's actually a really funny guy. So I think, I think content like that, it could be a really great way to, um, just show how, what, what it's like to, to hang out with, you know, people, uh, these people that only, that, that you only really know through their music. So that was funny because Aaron and I, basically we were, um, we, uh, we, we roomed together that night on that, that night of the tour. And we were in a, not the greatest hotel. And so we walked in and we're like, yo, what is this? And we were just walking around, like picking everything, picking everything apart. And then we had the idea like, yo, we should really do a cribs episode. And so we sat down and like watched the, uh, red man episode of cribs, like two or three times over just to get some inspiration. And then we were like, all right, let's just go for it. So it was all unscripted. Aaron, um, kind of everything that happens in that we did not script. I just let Aaron, uh, go with it. And it it's all, I think it was all, it's all one continuous shot. I think I chopped it up when I was editing it, but it was all one take and it was the funniest shit ever. And we, we want to do more of those, um, but we also don't want to run it into the ground. So we're kind of like, I was just with them again this past September in Japan and we didn't get a chance to do it again, but I'm kind of, kind of glad because there was no, there was no place we stayed that warranted it, but I'm tagging along with them to Australia next month and uh we'll see if there's somewhere that we think could make a good uh second cribs episode we'll probably do it yeah i i would be down for that or yeah just more content like that i i think is pretty cool because obviously um you know there's like a plethora of like live sets that people can go and watch but i I think sometimes people um like to see like like a little more like personal side of like the people in the bands so the fact that you're able to give that to us um it's definitely a cool thing i'm down for it yeah, I'm stoked to hear that because I'm always wondering how because I'm trying to branch out and do more different kinds of stuff, whether it's interviews or like cinematic highlight highlight reels. I'm just trying to create new kinds of content. So it's it's I appreciate that. I'm, I'm it's always value that kind of feedback. And uh, speaking of um, you going to Australia next month, um, have you ever been out there um, to film? No, no, this will be a first time for me. Wow. That's crazy. Like I've never been to Australia. I, I just know that it's like a really long flight to get down there. So I'm, um, I, I think that's pretty cool that you're able to um, travel down there for the first time. Yeah. I think it's like going to be a 20, 23 hour flight. I think there's, I have a short layover, but it's going to be pretty brutal. 
Um, but I mean, a lot of my viewers since I started have been in Australia and they've, they've always asked me to come down there. Um, so I'm excited to finally check it out. Cause aside from Jesus peace, knock loose and terror, I don't know any of the bands playing. I've never heard them. Um, so I'm excited to check them out and document them and showcase them on the site. Cause I think that it'll be good for, um, it'll be good. I mean, that's, that's largely what I'm trying to do with hate five, six now is make the platform available to other scenes and other bands that might not play near as I'm based in Philly. So I'm, I'm trying to give the platform, um, to bands and scenes that might not ever make their way to my neck of the woods. So yeah, I am very excited for this. Even, even if the, uh, the, the travel time might be a little bit of a, uh, might be a little bit of a hellish experience. I'm, expo- I'm excited to go down there and come home with a bunch of, bunch of content. So you're traveling down there, you're doing the run with uh, Knock Loose, Jesus Peace, and then uh, there's some shows with Terror, and then you're hitting Invasion Fest. Um, you're traveling to the side of the country. Do you have to get approval beforehand to film any of these shows, or do you just show up like, hey, I'm part of the tour, I'm filming? Like, How does that all that yeah. work? So so for this, the, the promoter of Invasion Fest, his name's Ash. Ash had tweeted at me like, hey, do you want to make this happen? So we, we hopped over to email and I was basically like, Hey, I'll, I'll shoot anything, but you got to like, you got to clear it with the venues. You got to clear it with the bands. And so typically with that, um, I, I prefer to get everything cleared in advance. Like here in Philly, like I can just show up to most shows that if it's promoted by someone I know, I can just show up and film it. Um, but if it's somewhere I've never been, I, I really prefer at least talking to the promoter and letting them know like, Hey, I'm coming. Like, is it cool if I do this? And then sometimes they'll be like, Hey, you have to run it by the bands. Um, so it really depends if it's somewhere new, I'll try to go through a formal process, but if it's somewhere that I've been, I, and I've been there a bunch, I kind of feel comfortable just like showing up and doing it. But, um, as a general rule of thumb, I'm trying to just seek permission more. I think it's just going to be, I mean, I think it's just gonna be easier for me in the long run. If I just run things by, um, all the, all the relevant parties be like, Hey, I'm coming to film this. Is that cooler? If that's not, then that's totally cool. I'll, I'll go take a break. But yeah, I think so. But for invasion fest, it was, it was all planned out well in advance. And, uh, one, one thing I'm also curious about, um, like on YouTube, you're filming like a bigger band, like knock loose. Uh, have you ever run into any issues with copyright strikes? So videos get, videos get copyright claimed every day. Uh, but that doesn't affect my account. It just means ads get run on the video and the revenue goes to the band or the label. Um, I've never gotten a strike on YouTube. I did get one. Um, it wasn't like a takedown notice. It was more of a, um, the video just wasn't accessible to most countries. And it was actually a knock loose video from, um, from Japan. Um, and I think it has to do with whoever owns their publishing or does their publishing, they have, they had very strict, um, settings in place. So basically what happened was the video got posted, but then I think most of the video got muted from a large number of people in like most countries. So I just reached out to the band or I reached out to the label being like, Hey, like, um, is there any way you can lift this? And they, they actually took care of it very, very, very quickly. They were able to, um, make sure that the video was not blocked. So I've not gotten a strike, but every, every now and then, I'll get a video that's blocked in multiple countries and I'll have to reach out to the band or reach out to the label and ask them if they can like lift that restriction. Um, but yeah, getting strikes knock on wood is a very, at least for me, it hasn't happened. And uh, are most labels like, you know, supportive of what you're doing on YouTube or have you ever got any like weird pushback? 
No, I, I really get pushed back from labels because, again, um, a lot of them will have just they'll have automatic the, the, the videos of that of those bands will get automatically claimed. And so all that all that means is the video will get some ads and um, it's just redirecting that uh, revenue to to those bands. So I've I rarely get any pushback from bands sometimes or, or from labels every now and then, every now and then a band will say, hey, can you not post that video like we played kind of sloppy or we we had a fill in drummer like we don't want the video up and that, that's not a problem. I'll just I'll just either not post it or, or I'll take it down. But very rarely am I met with like any malicious or um, like sour pushback. And um, those instances where they have like a fill-in drummer, do you keep the footage or do you just trash it? Yeah, so I there was uh, I, I save everything that I film, even stuff that don't that doesn't get posted. I I keep all the original files for. Um, there was one set that I filmed. I think it was um, who was it? It was um, oh shit! Why am I blanking on this now? Um, I can't remember. The, they played in Chicago. Um, and I think they asked for the video to not go up cause they, the, the lighting was way too dark and you couldn't see anything. And so I like deleted, I got home and I just, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to post this cause they don't want us. I'm just, I'm just going to delete it and save room on my hard drive. And I, I, I regret it to this day cause that might've been the only time I'll ever get to film them. So I, I do keep things at least for my own records. And you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that like people's opinions will change. And then maybe one day, like the band that didn't want me to post that video, they might want it up just cause it's, it's been so long and they want to relive it. So I do keep things on the off chance that in the future there will be some use for it. Okay. Um, one thing that I was curious about, I was reading an, um, an interview you did and, and you used to talk about uh, back in the day, you used to um, trade VHS tapes with other people. Like you guys would trade um, VHS tapes with like bands, live footage. Um, how old were you when you were doing that? I must have been like, oh gosh, 13, 14, 15 when I first started trading. So I was like late middle school, very early high school probably when I was starting to get these tapes. And so I would say like 15 and on, I was starting to trade, I'd say. Yeah. And how are you getting the money to like pay for the postage? Like were your parents okay with you receiving these like random packages? Cause like me, like thinking, um, you know, being as young as you were like, um, I didn't even have like, like, was I 30? Yeah. I don't even think I had good internet back then. And I didn't even know about like message boards or anything like that when I was that young. Yeah, they were fine with it. I mean, I only, I feel like I trade like physically, I maybe only traded a handful of things at, at that age. I think when I first started, it was a lot of digital trading. So it's like, Hey, if you upload that video, the, to my server and, and uh, I'll, I'll send you this one instead or in exchange for it. So a lot of it was digital trading um, just through private FTP servers. Um, and I think like, I think by the time I was doing um, more of the physical trading. I had like an allowance, right? I think I was, wor- I, I had a job like my first, uh, high school job. So I had some income to do it. And my parents never really got weird about me <laughs> receiving packages. They kind of, they kind of just let me do it. Yeah. Cause I feel like back then it was just like, uh, like to give out your address to like some stranger on the internet was like way more scary than it is like these days. Yeah. Look looking back at, <laughs> I'm kind of like, damn, maybe they, we should have been a little, a little bit more careful with that. 
Yeah, who knows? But I, I yeah, I, I, just, I thought it was like really interesting, just like reading stuff about that because my, when I was younger, like I, I knew this older guy who was like really into wrestling, and he used to talk about you know getting all these like crazy Japanese like wrestling matches, and he would show us like people getting their heads shoved in like buckets that had like a snake in it and all this crazy stuff. Because like when I was younger, I liked like WWF. I didn't know anything about Japanese wrestling, so like going over to this guy's house and him showing us all these crazy tapes, like it just like kind of like blew my mind that there's people out there then like you know and there was like this like you know community online that i just had no idea existed yeah it's funny i mean a lot of communities like that um at least back then they had similar trading whether it was wrestling or underground music um just the idea of i mean that that stuff is largely what keeps a lot of interest alive I mean, I think with some of those bands that got traded heavily on VHS tapes that got people so excited to eventually see that band live. Um, so I think that, um, even if it's like an unsanctioned way of distributing content around a band, it really, I think on the whole did a lot to get people excited or interested in that band or that scene that whatever, whether it was, or whether it was underground wrestling or, or music, it just the nature of people documenting it and sharing it. Um, I think brought a lot of people into those worlds and into those spaces. Okay. And I wanted to ask you about your experience because I know you're a big fan of Rage Against the Machine. I, I know that you came out here um, in 2007 to see them at Coachella Fest. Yeah. And you know what's funny is like I w- was there that year because um, like I was like uh, fresh like out of high school and um, I grew up in like the next city over. So uh, I always knew about Coachella Fest. And back then you could um, but still attend the fest by buying day tickets. Like I remember my friends and I, we went in um, and we bought tickets from scalpers for every day. Like I, rem- I remember specifically I paid $60 to get into Coachella the day Rage played. So I, I and obviously I feel like you're older than me. So I was um, curious about what your experience was like back then, if you can remember anything from it. So in terms of that, that specific show or what? Yeah. Yeah. Just your experience coming down to California and being at Coachella Fest and like, did you see any other bands or like, how was like, yeah, your time? Yeah. So when Rage broke up in like 2000, what was it? 2001? Uh, no, 2000. So my brother and I made a pact. We were basically like, if Rage, my, my older brother, he's the one who got me into, into Rage. We basically said, if Rage ever reunites, we're going to like fly wherever to do it. So fast forward like seven years, they, they play, they announce we're playing Coachella. We immediately book flights. We immediately get tickets. And it, it, I remember it being pretty easy back then to get tickets. It wasn't like what it is now. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, and so we, cut, we it was a one day trip. We flew in, uh, I think, the night before. And then the next morning, my, we rented a car. My brother drove me and my friend Kyle down. I think we, we stayed in LA and I think India was what, like an hour, hour, two hours south. It's like, it's like two hours, two hours south. Yeah. And so my brother wasn't stoked on doing that drive. I still, I still owe him a lot for doing it. Um, but we were there for one day. We didn't camp out. Um, I remember it being, it was like, it wasn't hot. It wasn't unbearable. It was like, I think it was cause the, it wasn't really humid. So it was, it was totally bearable, um, but it felt like a long day. I remember sitting through explosions in the sky, and I think that was the first time I saw them. And I was like, "Damn, I actually this is kind of cool." Like it, it had. I remember there was like a it was like a 
a light breeze coming through and I just had my eyes closed and I wasn't stoned, but I, I kind of felt like, man, is this, is this what it's like to be stoned? Like at Coachella, you're in the sun, there's a nice little breeze and you're just eyes closed, listening to explosions in the sky. Okay, cool. Um, so that was pretty cool. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I don't remember who else I saw. I remember, um, Willie Nelson. So I probably got contact high just like from other people around me. I remember that kind of dragging out. I was kind of re- at that point, really just waiting for rage. Uh, I think Manu Chow played before them. Is that the artist I'm thinking of? Um, and again, I, I was just so ready for rage and I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on, but, um, I just remember the, the excitement when that, when, when the, when they opened and just being in a sea of like, I think it was like 60,000 people or something crazy like that. And just, I don't know, it was, uh, it was a moment that I'd waited seven years for and it was, it was worth it. It was so worth it. But like, so then we, we drove back to LA that night. And again, my brother was not happy about that because it took all night to get home with the traffic and everything coming out of the Coachella parking lot. Um, and then we flew home the next day. It was a really quick in and out. Um, and I think it's, I think Coachella is like, it's even bigger now. I don't know what, what the capacity is now, but it's so much harder. I think, I think it sells out. Like it's already sold out. Like I think, I think it's sold out the, at the previous Coachella. Like I think they sell out like a year in advance. So it's become a much bigger thing. Um, but I really enjoyed, even though it was like a massive shit show in general, just dealing with Coachella um, back then, it was, I, for me, it was worth worth uh, executing that pact to see them play their first show back. Yeah, I I think it's awesome that you guys made that pact and you guys like actually, you know, lived up to it. You, nobody backed out. You guys were still down for it. Uh, I think that's like pretty special. And um, obviously Rage is coming back. And uh, next year, um, you know, 2020, uh, do you have any plans to go to any of their shows? I'm trying to go to as many as I can. I mean, they haven't announced any tickets yet, so it's, it's a little hard to say, but mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try to go. Um, even if I can't get tickets, I'm just going to go maybe and see what happens. Maybe I can find a way in or find someone who can let me in. So uh, I am very excited for this. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I'm going to do my very best to at least be there. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, that's awesome. And it's cool that they're coming out, coming back and playing those string of shows. Cause I feel like that band is important to a lot of people. Yeah. Especially now, I think that there needs to be voices in media and pop and popular culture that are saying things that aren't being said right now. So a lot of the, the first three shows that they're playing are, in areas that have ice detention facilities. And I think that they're going to be making, they're going to be make there. I think it's a very calculated thing that they're doing to, to play in those, in those areas. So I'm expecting there to be, I mean, besides the shows, I'm expecting there to be uh, stuff happening around the shows to raise awareness about what's going on. So um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that the time is overdue. Um, I think the, and I'm, I'm just very glad that it's, it's, we're finally here. Cause I think that outside of the punk hardcore world, I don't feel like a lot of artists are really using their platform to speak up or raise awareness about things in a way that rage did in the nineties that they, they do get criticism for, for being a major label band and doing things on a large scale, but, um, they do it with a very calculated intent to, uh, push a very specific message message out there. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that uh, 
the time is right for it. And I think that they're going to be using that platform to say and do things that um, are largely not being done right now. Okay. I, I kind of wanted to switch gears. I'm um, talking about bands that um, are coming back. I, I want to talk about a band that came back and had a pretty big impact on the community. Um, Have Heart, you filmed a majority of the shows. Um, and if it's, uh, or like, I don't know if there's like a, like a big story behind it, but I, I noticed that there was just um, two specific shows that you didn't film. And I, I know on your frequently asked questions, um, you mentioned that you only filmed the shows you got permission to. I was just wondering, did you um, make an attempt to try to get permission to come out to the shows in LA? Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a mess. Um, I'm not allowed to film shows that that are put on by a certain person and I'm not, I've never been told why. Um, so it's been of a bit of a weird thing where, um, I'm, I'm expected to go shoot certain things, um, for a band and I just not allowed to, and it's become a very unfortunate thing. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. And I'm, I'm kind of like left in the dark. So that's as much as I can say. And cause I, again, I don't know the source of it. Um, but had that not been an issue, I was planning on doing all eight of the shows. Cause I think, uh, it would have been great. And I think, I think the band kind of wished that that was the case, that it would have been one person documenting, documenting everything in a consistent way. Because, um, the six that I did, I did do with uh, four to five camera angles. I multi-tracked the soundboard audio. So they're all going to have a very consistent and uniform aesthetic to them. And so it's, it's very unfortunate that the, that two of those six are not going to be represented in that way. Cause it was going to be, uh, I think everyone was hoping that they would be all the, the story of the shows would be told in a, um, in a consistent way. So it's, it's very unfortunate. That's not going to be the case. And in the wording um, on your frequently asked questions, you mentioned, um, uh, I read it as if there was going to be multiple releases. So um, are you breaking it up by show? Yeah. So that's something I've been in discussion with Pat and the band the last couple of weeks. Uh, so full disclosure, I'm still editing everything. Um, I'm finally getting mixes back from this, the shows. So the, the way that I've been thinking about it and I've been telling the band and I think they agree is that I don't want to post all six of those videos at the same time. Cause that's just, that's just too much content and it's just, they're all going to cannibalize each other. So what I, the way I think about video releases is how do I maximize people's like people have a very limited attention span. And so, um, especially now in the digital age, like you have one shot essentially to get people to like check something out. Um, so what I want to do is I want to be smart in terms of how the releases are structured. Like, I don't want to put all six out on the same day. I want to space them out in a certain way. That's smart. So what we're probably going to do is we'll probably do like one release or one video every week or every other week for however long it takes to get those six out just so that all the attention is driven to that new release. And it gives something people to look forward to like, Oh, the first one came out like, cool it's going to get a bunch of hype for the first week or two. And then once people have had their fill of it, they'll also have the excitement. They'll have the excitement knowing that the next one is going to come out just around the corner. So we're, we're still planning on the, um, the kickoff date because I want to, I want to have a bunch of them edited and ready to go. Like I, I, be, I don't want to have, I don't want to put myself in a position where I release one of them and I'm, I'm on the clock to get the next one done. I basically want to have, three or four of them edited and ready, ready to go in my pocket just so that when I kick off, 
I'm ready to post the next one or next two and I'm not chasing the next release. So I'm almost at that point. Like I said, I have about two of them edited and I'm probably going to work on the third one pretty soon. And so I think that uh, sooner than later, we'll have like a kickoff date announced and we'll just go with it. So um, I kind of have it. I have a rough idea in my head about how, what the order is that I want to do. Um, I've, I've told some people, some people like it. Some people think it's not the right order, but I think the band agrees with me that this is probably the best order. Um, but yeah, so pretty soon we're going to do a kickoff and it, it'll, again, it'll be structured in a way where it's, um, it's spaced out to maximize people's viewing of each specific one and also giving people the excitement to have, uh, the next one coming around, coming out just around the corner. And just to be clear, um, are you doing like every band from that specific date on one day or are you breaking up, um, the sets? So each video will just be the have heart set unbroken. Um, cause I, I did film all the openers and all the other bands at each of the shows. But for me, the, uh, the difficulty right now is like, I want to spend as much time as I can on have heart. So I want to get, I want to get all the have heart stuff done and edited and written out. And then I'm going to backtrack and, uh, work on the openers. So each specific release in this kickoff is just going to be the have heart set from that show. Um, and then once I'm either completely done or mostly done with that, I'm going to go back and work on the openers. And those will be, those will be released like normal Hey Five Six videos, not on any weird schedule, just like edited and and released on its own as it's, it's a, as a standalone video. Okay, because uh, I'm uh, I was like really really looking forward to um, the set from One Step Closer because I know that's like one band that you've um, posted about, which I think is cool because I I think they're a great band and I was just really looking forward to that set. So I can't wait for that one to come out and have people to be able to vote for that one. Yeah, yeah, no, they, a lot of those openers they they played amazing sets. And I think um, obviously everyone's excited for Have Heart and stuff, but I think that those other videos are gonna they're gonna be they're gonna be just as great. Because again, like I again, I ran multiple angles for all of them, and I had a soundboard guy multi-tracking everything. So all those videos have to go through a pretty tedious process of editing. But I think that um, once when they eventually come out, they're gonna be hopefully worth the wait. And you talk about, um, you know, you have all like the soundboard mixings um, and one name that comes to mind when I hear about stuff like that from your videos is Len Carmichael. Can you talk about um, your relationship with him and is he the one who, um, who's going to be working with you on those videos? Yeah. So Len's been a friend of mine for over 10 years. I mean, we both grew up in Jersey and just known each other just around shows. Um, 2011, he reached out to me. He's, he's an audio engineer, um, not full time. Um, but it's a hobby of his and he would probably like to go full time with it. But he reached out to me in 2011 saying like, Hey, like you should really multi-track the audio for this is hardcore. I think it'd be really cool. And you should let me do it. And I was honestly on the fence about it. I kind of didn't like the idea of having really clean audio, but I decided to give it a shot with him in 2012. And honestly, it was probably the best decision. Like, um, that was like an inflection point in terms of, um, views and how people, uh, think about hate five, six videos. So ever since then, he and I have worked together on a lot of stuff. Every, every, this is hardcore. He's the guy who's sitting literally, he's literally behind a curtain on stage with a multi-track recording deck, like recording everything and making sure that things aren't getting unplugged and that we're getting the signals that we need. Um, the process with him is I generally give him first dibs on what he wants to mix. So he's the one who's engineering everything. So it's only fair to let him choose what he gets to work on. 
Um, anything that he doesn't want to work on, we have a small team of like trusted engineers that he's worked with on worked with on other projects. And at this point that I've worked with before, we have a small group of engineers that we trust to be able to like produce a well, a good sounding live mix that incorporates like live ambient audio and also it incorporates the multi-track audio as well. Um, so he's working on, he, he multi-tracked the have art shows with me, the, the U S ones with me. Um, so he's, he's doing all but one of the have art shows, uh, all the European shows. One of them was multi-tracked by a, uh, the first one in Germany was multi-tracked by a guy out there who helped me, uh, get the, multi-track recording gear. So I let him record it and I, I'm letting him mix it. And he actually just sent me the mix back and I sent it to Pat and to, and to Austin and they fucking love it. So, um, he, he, uh, his name is, um, uh, Bjorn Bjorn did that one. He nailed it. Uh, Len submitted two mixes. No, Len did the first mix to me and the band liked it. So that's good to go. So he's doing the remaining, uh, five, um, for me even though he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't with me in Europe, but he, so he didn't engineer them, but he, uh, I'm giving him the files to work on just cause for me, I want them to be as consistent as sound, uh, consistent sounding and looking as possible. So I'd rather have the same person mixing them, uh, when possible. Uh, he's, he's probably going to do a, he's probably going to do some of the non have heart bands from those shows, but I think that I'm going to have to farm them out to, um, people on the engineering team to see, to basically offer them up to people who want to work on them and let them do it. Okay. That's interesting. Like I, I definitely like that you made the decision to, um, you know, let him rec- uh, record the, uh, different tracks for this is hardcore in 2012 because I, I, I really like the, the clean audio. I, I, I think it's really awesome. It gives you like that feel like you're actually there. Yeah. It's, it's something that some people love it. Some people hate it. Um, for me, I'm constantly trying to make it better. And I think if you watch some of the 2012 stuff and compare it to the stuff now, we've gotten a lot better. Um, and again, Len's become a better mixer and uh, the other people who work with us, they've gotten better at mixing. Um, but we've, we've just gotten better at capturing the ambience of what it feels like to be in the room and baking that into the mix. So if you watch some of those early soundboard mix videos from this is hardcore, like it sounds like a CD. It sounds like an actual, like a studio, not a studio recording, but it sounds very clean, which some people like, but it's not, sometimes it lacks in, Oh damn, this is the actual feeling of being in the room. And that's something that's captured by like an external microphone. So we're constantly trying to be better about that. And I think that, um, especially now, now that we've been doing it for what, like eight, nine years, like, um, we're, we're, we're finally getting into a groove where we're able to find the right balance between a really good sounding live mix and also just like ensuring that we're retaining the feel, the feeling of being in that room just through the ambient audio as well. And, uh, one, another thing I'm curious about is, um, obviously you're standing on stage holding your camera. Um, have you ever had like any trouble of like, you know, people damaging your camera or have you ever thought about, um, like going somewhere where it's a little more safe? Yeah, I've only had two serious issues at one show. It wasn't on stage. I was standing, it was like a show where the band was playing on the floor. And so I was on the floor as well. And someone like spin kicked the camera out of my hand and had like a $500, $500 repair. Um, at Mindset's last Baltimore show, um, it was the Charm City Art Space, which is a small venue in Baltimore. 
I was on stage, someone jumped on stage and like got really excited and they swung their arms back and they punched my camera into my face and they broke my tooth. They chipped two of my teeth pretty badly and broke my camera. So that was an incident. Besides that, again, knock on wood, nothing major has happened besides like getting kicked from a stage diver or whatever. No major incidents to me or the camera itself. Every now and then I'll, I'll decide to like film from the back of the room um, just to change up perspective. And, um, and it's not done out of safety or anything. It's mostly just done out of like, Oh, you know what? I've shot a hundred shows here from the side of the stage. Like, let me just try something different just to switch it up. And, uh, I read this interview and, it, uh, um, you mentioned that uh, you hadn't um, gotten a new camera since 2011. Um, and I can't remember when the, uh, the interview was, so I, I was curious, um, when was the last time you updated your, um, hardware? Yeah. So I'm still using, I mean, I've gotten, uh, it's a Canon XF 100 that I bought in 2011. I've bought since then I've bought like replacements for it, but I'm still using the same model to shoot all my shows since 2011. I've gotten like, an, I've gotten a couple new microphones over the last couple of years just to improve on the non. So a lot, a lot of my videos are not soundboard audio. So I've gotten better microphones just to capture the ambient audio for it. Um, but yeah, I'm still shooting with the, essentially the same setup since 2011. I just, I prefer, I like that workflow. I like the look of it. It's not the best in low light, but it gets the job done. Um, I'm part of me is hesitant to, part of me is hesitant to really change it up. Cause I think that it would change the aesthetic and the feel, um, of the videos. So it's something that I haven't really thought about much. And, oh, I've thought about it, but I haven't really bit the bullet and, and, and done it yet. Um, especially now that I have three or four of the same camera, it's so much easier for me to do a multi-cam shoot where, whereas like before I had to rent out multiple cameras of the same model. But now that I own three of them, it's so easy for me to just go out and, and do a multi-cam shoot. And if I, if I, if I change one, I'm going to feel pressured to change all of them. And I don't want to do that yet. Um, I did get a new camera that I'm using for like drum cams and I'm using it for interviews and doing, if you've seen any of like my slow motion cinematic highlight reels, I'm using that new camera for it. So I keep that new camera for like specialty purposes, but I'm keeping my old camera for like, all of my shoes, all of my, my, my regular show filming stuff. I, I just, I keep with it because it's something that's, it's worked and it's, uh, it's been working well and I don't feel the pressure to change it yet. Yeah. Cause I, I was, I was always curious um, if you ever had any interest in shooting in like 4k. Yeah. So the issue with that, and I get that question a lot is there's a couple issues. I don't think a lot of people, I mean, I mean, maybe now it's easier for people to play 4k, but just as of like a year or two ago, like not many people I don't think were capable of watching 4k videos, um, that easily. I mean, it's, it's getting easier now. So that's one part of it. The other part is the average watch time on a hate by six video is only like four to five minutes. So for me, it's, it's a question of, okay, if I start filming in 4k, this, the amount of storage space I need is going to double or more than double. And that's going to become a problem, um, in terms of just cost efficiency especially when people are only watching the first four or five minutes. And a lot of people are only watching on their phones where 1080p is going to be sufficient. So I'm not feeling like the demand is there yet to do 4k or anything above 1080. Um, and again, the other issue is just a technical and practical issues with just with storage. Cause right now I have about, I have two 50, 50 terabyte hard uh, storage arrays. So, um, if I start shooting in 4k, I'm going to, I'm going to be eating up. Like I basically I've projected 
how much space I have and how long that's going to last me. And that's basically in terms of number of sets and number of years filming at my current rate. And so if I start filming at 4k, that's going to fuck everything up because it's going to basically again, eat up my space faster than I've been able to project for. So there's a lot of stuff like that where I'm anticipating having enough space for the next, um, however many years. And, um, if I start changing things up, it's going to really impact my growth. And, uh, it's something that it takes a lot more serious consideration than I think people realize. That definitely makes sense. Cause it, um, obviously yeah, the file size does matter, especially like when you're doing them at the volume that you are, the, the fact that you have to find space to store all that stuff. I, I definitely get that point. And, um, and I, I, I watch like, like a lot of YouTube ma- mainly like, but you're like random vloggers. Uh, and I, I do appreciate like their, um, quality. So I, I was always just wondering if anybody would ever, um, you know, take that, um, and, you know, film hardcore sets live like that. Yeah, I would, I would maybe do like a, in, in, in hindsight, if I had the budget, I probably would have shot the have hard stuff in 4k, but I, I would have had to rent like a bunch of cameras for it. So there, there are probably cases where if it's like a big one-off, I would probably do it. Um, but for now I'm kind of just like leaving it as is. And it's, it's, it's both an issue with like my local storage and also Vimeo. Like I've already maxed out one Vimeo account cause they, they, they give you a cap on how much storage space you have. So I've already maxed one out, which is kind of crazy. So I've had to open up another one and that's an extra additional cost for monthly hosting on there. So there's just a lot of things like that, that I, I have to take into consideration. Like, um, and the other part of it, like I said before, is just wanting a, a certain consistency with how my videos look. Like if I start, if I start shooting random shows in 4k, um, those cameras are gonna have different sensors. They're gonna have a different look and feel to them, especially with how I like to move my camera. Like I, I do a lot of specific movements that, um, I'm trying to keep a consistency both within that aesthetic as well. So yeah, I mean, um, long story short, ideally it would be cool to do 4k. Um, but I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm there yet. For sure. That that's fair. That's just, uh, one thing I was curious about. Um, you did, uh, Hey, five, six rewind with shackled. And I, I was curious why you picked that band to do that with. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of them. Uh, shout out to shackled New Jersey hardcore. So I, I was wondering what your mindset was to do that with them. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. So for me, the hard part with doing the rewind episodes is, uh, finding availability with bands. So band, like I've been, uh, you know, mind force and incendiary are both bands that want to come do it, but they're both in New York. They're not in Philly that often. So finding a time for them when they're down here is so hard. I mean, they were, they were both just down here for a show last or earlier this month, but, um, they didn't have time before the show or after the show to come and do it. So a lot of the rewind episodes are just bands in the area. So I did like you're the knife, Jesus peace, um, shackled, uh, again, cause they're all bands that are pretty close to Philly. So getting them in was very easy. So that's part one. The second part of it is, um, I, I feel like shackled is on the come up for sure right now. Like a lot of people are, you know, talking about them and I think they're, this is hardcore video did a lot of good for them. So, um, I wanted to get them in just to talk about that, that set specifically. Um, and again, like a lot of people, I'll ask people like, Hey, what bands should I interview? And it's always the same, like the same bands that people want me to talk, talk to. It's the same top 40 popular hardcore bands. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's so much other stuff going on and so many other bands that I think are worth interviewing that like, again, going back to what I was saying with the Australia stuff, like I'm trying to use hate five, six as a platform to showcase the up and coming bands, the bands that people don't really know about. So it's constantly trying to find a balance between getting those really popular bands, 
Um, but also making sure I'm not losing sight of the younger bands that are up and coming um, that people also want to hear about. That's great. I, I, I definitely love that mindset because um, I try to do the same thing uh, with this podcast. I obviously try to talk to, um, you know, the, the big bands or whoever is willing to talk to me. But I also like to keep an eye on um, on the younger bands, like the newer bands coming up because all day on social media, you know, there's always new demos popping up or, you know, bands will make it past the demo, do an EP. So I, I'm always like, you know, trying to um, stay current and uh, listen to everything as much as I can and just try to, you know, keep my finger on the pulse and know like what's good and try to give these bands like, you know, their shine and you know their fair shake and, you know, try to help them not get overlooked because there's always new bands popping up, you know, left and right. And sometimes, um, you know, bands will just get overlooked. And, um, with this, that the podcast that I do, like all I want to do is just try to help, you know, push people and, you know, get them like, you know, more shine. Yeah, it's tough, especially like you said, now there's just an oversaturation of everything. So, and again, to my point earlier, it's, it's almost like you have a limited window to get people's attention. And that's, that's largely why I'm very particular about how videos are released. Like I'll only do two or three videos a day. If I do more than that, then that's just too much content. So by, by restricting how much I post, it sort of forces people's attention and for, for, forces people to focus on that specific band. So it's tough because, you know, there's so much happening. There's, there's so much that could be posted all at once, but in order to sort of like com- combat these social media algorithms, you have to be smart in terms of how you're showcasing things. And especially with, with new bands that are fighting for people's attention, it's really important to make sure that you're being fair to them um, and giving them as much attention as possible as you would to like a really popular big band. So you go out and you film all these sets and obviously you're leaving it up to the people to vote for the sets to come out and you're limiting yourself on the number of sets you release. Do you ever um, get in a position where you feel like you're so backed up, you want to kind of take a break to let it catch up or are you just going to just constantly keep filming and just let it all just kind of come out on its own? Yes, that, that is a bit of a problem. So right now I have about, let me see, I have about 235 videos all edited and ready to go. So theoretically I could, I could stop filming today and I have enough content edited and ready to go to be released every day for the next 235 days. Um, or again, if I do three videos a day, that's basically every day through March. So the problem is, well, it's not, some people think it's a problem and it could be, um, it might be a good problem to have, but like, I personally think that 235 videos deep in the queue is too big. Um, I would like that number to get down to closer to hundred, just so that if you think about it, if the, if the queue is hundred videos deep, then, um, if I'm doing three videos a day, then that every video is at least within one month of being released or whatever it is. If I, if I, if it's, um, if I do one video a day, then it's a hundred days, three, three or three months out for every possible release. So I'm trying to find a balance between keeping the queue, uh, manageable so that videos aren't waiting too long, but also keeping it long, keeping it big enough that it keeps people, uh, voting to, get that video out sooner than later. Because if the queue is only five videos deep, for example, then um, there's no motivation to vote because every video is going to come out within the next five days. So um, it is a part, it is a bit of a problem because I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is the best balance in terms of 
what is my filming rate versus my uploading rate. So I'm filming, I haven't, I haven't looked at it in, in a while, so I don't know how much I'm filming in a given month. But for example, if I'm only filming, if I'm, if I'm filming, um, 20, 20 band, 20 sets per month and I'm only uploading, or let's, let's say it's, uh, let's just change the, change the number. If I'm, if I'm filming, if I'm uploading 90 videos a month, that's three videos a day. If I'm doing 90 a month, but I'm filming a hundred videos, hundred bands a month, then I'm never going to catch up because what's coming in is bigger than what's going out. So I need to find the right balance between what's coming out relative to what's coming in. And so I think it needs to be closer to like one-to-one. So if I'm filming, if I film 60 videos in January, then in February, I should aim to post 60 videos just so that the queue is constantly um, remaining static and it's not ballooning to what it is now at like 230 because I think 230 is way too big. So I think what I'm hoping for is in January, I'm again, I'm traveling to Australia and I'm, I'm actually going to India after that for my cousin's wedding. So most of January is just knocked out. I'm not going to be editing anything. So hit five, six is going to be completely, completely on autopilot. So whatever I have edited, um, by the end of this month, that's going to be what's eligible for release in January. So the plan is roughly, um, 30 times three, 90 videos are going to come out in January, give or take. And so the, the queue is going to go from 235 to maybe like, uh, 140 ish by the end of January. And that's closer to what I want it to be. And so the plan is in February, uh, in f- so February, I'm going to be editing everything that I film in January. So I think I'm, I'm expected to film maybe 40 or 50 bands in Australia. So February, I'm going to be adding those 50 bands back to the queue. So as you can see, there's just like a lot of stuff I, I got to juggle here. So I, the way I see it is by the end of January, I'll, the queue will be down from 235 to about 140. And then February, I'll again be posting two or three videos a day. So that's again, maybe another um, 80, 90 videos. But again, I'll be adding another 50 from what I film in in Australia. So long story short, by the end of February, I'm hoping the queue will be at a much more manageable size. Cause again, I'm trying to find the right balance between keeping it long enough where people are excited for what's going to come out down the road. Um, but not keeping it long enough where things are just like rotting and like languishing in the queue sitting unreleased. Cause right now it's so, it's so massive that, I mean, the video that I posted yesterday, this band called Chapang from Nepal, I filmed them December, 2018. So that video was in the queue for a year and that was cause no one voted for it. So I want to get it to a point where a video is not waiting in the queue for a year. It's only waiting for maybe a couple months tops. That, that's fair. Cause that was going to be my next question. Like what happens to those um, sets that never get voted out? Like, do they stay like, you know, in the queue forever? Like how are like the people who want to see these sets that aren't getting voted to the top? Um, like how are they able to access them? Yeah. So the, a lot of that stuff is available for early access on the Patreon feed. But one thing that I did develop was that, um, videos that sit unreleased in the queue, they, they do, uh, they do accumulate artificial votes over time. So that was a way to level the playing field. So a video that gets no votes after a year will have like, I don't know, 300, 400 votes that it just accumulated on its own, um, just by sitting in the queue. So that's a, that's a, that's a constant number. So every video gets the same number of accumulated votes over votes over time. But I have a couple of ideas how to level that playing field a little bit more. So for example, if it's a brand new band that I've never filmed before, 
Uh, I want to have a system that gives them more artificial votes than, for example, like let's say I have a let's say I have a brand new band and a Jesus Peace video that have been both sitting in the queue for six months for whatever reason. I've already filmed Jesus Peace like thirty or forty times, for example. So I want to give more artificial votes to that new band. So I'm I'm playing with a couple ideas and hopefully sometime in 2020 I'll have it ready. But the basic idea is that. Um, videos of bands that are new or that have never been posted hey five six before they'll get um more artificial votes than say a band that i filmed 40 or 50 times um and i think that'll level the playing field um much more than it currently is so i'm kind of constantly trying to find the right balance because again like one of the issues with the voting thing is everyone's always going to be upvoting the popular bands or the bands that they, that, they, that they know and they might not be voting for the band that has yet to 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 make a break and so it's it's always a battle between how do i how do i give people the power to vote for what's coming out by but also giving those uh smaller bands a fair shot of coming out sooner and not sitting sitting unreleased for for a year yeah it definitely sounds like a lot of work but it's definitely cool that you have these ideas in place and you're trying to find the right balance because uh i i know bands do get excited to um have you film their sets and i'm sure they get even more excited when it finally gets released so you know people from around the world can watch that set and you know get some new exposure yeah and uh, I, I know um, you do this whole thing. It's, it's like a one man team. Um, have you ever gotten to the point where you wanted to expand the team, maybe get somebody to help you out? Because I know you have a lot on your plate. And, you know, I, I think about like you have like a merch store, like who like how do you have time to ship out merch? Uh, so I was just always curious if you were ever um, down to expand and grow and have people join the team. Yeah. So right now, like. It's, it's, it is a one man operation. I obviously, if I'm doing a multi-camp shoot, I'll have, I'll hire a couple of friends to run the second camera angles or I'll, I'll have land record the audio. So there are sort of secondary people that are contracted out for specific things, but the day to day, like I'm shooting a inclination year than I've showed tonight. That's just going to be me. I'm going to come home and edit it. And it's hard for me to picture how that stuff would be distributed across the team. Cause I, I'm very particular again, like going back to what we talked about earlier, like I'm very particular about how the videos are edited and how, like even to the minor detail, the how a logo fades in, like a lot of that is very, um, I'm very anal about, and I'm very, I have a hard time picturing how I would relinquish it, relinquish it. So I think that if I start bringing people on, it would be for more administrative things like, Oh, this person's going to help me merge or ship merch stuff out. This person's going to help run the Twitter or just do the social media or answer emails and do scheduling. Um, but for me, it's, it's hard to picture how I would, um, delegate tasks because it's been so after 11 years, it's like, it's ingrained within my identity and it's, it's so ingrained with my daily, daily day to day, my, my activities that it's hard for me to give up some of that control. Um, and the other part is, um, just also like training people, I think would be a little bit of a task because again, there's so much technical stuff behind the scenes with the hit by six with just like the coding and how the servers and things interact that it would be, it would take a lot of time and resources to train someone to be well-versed in how to operate the thing. So it's not something that I'm not against it. Cause I think there's going to come a point where I do need to train someone cause I'm not going to be, uh, you know, obviously I want hate five six to outlast me. So I'm going to have to at some point train someone to learn how it all works and learn how to keep the system going. Um, but right now it's hard for me to envision 
what that training process would look like and find someone that's really eager to really dive into it. Cause if, if I'm going to be spending, um, the energy and resources to train someone, I want someone that's, that's 110% committed to it. And, um, figuring out if someone's 99% versus 110% is a hard thing to do. And that's a very important distinction that I'm, that I would need to make. Yes. Yeah, especially if they're going to try to carry on the name. I feel like that's like a really big deal. Yeah. I know that, um, uh, just through like, uh, being on your website and reading these interviews, uh, you're into BMX. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up riding BMX probably around the same time that I started listening to hardcore. Um, it's been like a big part of my life. It's, it's kind of taken a little bit of a backseat now that it's winter, at least in Philly on the East coast. And it's, um, I've been filming a lot more, so I haven't had much time to ride, but it's, uh, I definitely go through phases where I'm not riding as much. And then where I'm not filming as much, I'm riding more. So right now I'm in a phase where um, I haven't been on my bike as often as I'd like to. But yeah, I'm still still a BMX rider. That's awesome. I I have very little knowledge when it comes to BMX, but uh, it, was, it was like a couple of months ago I was on uh, World Star Hip Hop and like I stumbled across this BMX video, and it was done by this uh, guy. He's based out of I think, I think he's based out of Long Island. His name is uh, Anthony Panza, and he does like um like not like daily vlogging, but he'll do like videos of like him and his friends like you know hitting like different spots like in New York, and I I just find it like really fascinating and just like seeing like the shots on like you know, I'm um, him just riding through the city, like through the GoPro and, uh, you know, him playing bike with his friends. Uh, I, I, I just don't know why, but I, I just find it really fascinating. And, um, I was just curious if you knew who he was. No, the name is familiar, but I, I, I maybe I'd recognize a video, but I don't, it's not, it's not ringing a bell. Okay. Yeah. He's, um, like, he's, uh, sponsored by cult and, uh, he's like a decent following. He's not like super, super big from my knowledge, just like a, okay. Yeah, but just based out of Long Island, just cool uh, BMX YouTuber. Hmm, yeah, I'll check him out. Okay. Um, it was in uh, Baltimore. You uh, live stream a show on Twitch. Uh, it was like, I think like, like maybe a month ago. Yeah, there was the uh, Queensway Sanction show. Yeah, so a couple things I, I wanted to know about that show. Um, there was a fight uh, during the show um, and the camera went black. Did, did you cover the camera or did the feed just cut out during the fight? Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm, I've always been on the fence about live streaming shows because I, I don't want the videos to ever replace going to a show. And I think that if I start live streaming a lot of stuff, it'll open me up to a lot of criticism. Like, oh, people aren't going to shows because you're, you're live streaming. So I, I mostly did it as a test just to see if it's possible. And so I was, t- I was talking to someone. I was like, hey, I'm feeling like kind of weird about this. Like, you know, with my luck, a fight's going to break out. And he's like, dude, fight's not going to break out. There's never fights that shows. So I was like, all right, fine. So I, I live stream it. And this was with my new camera setup. So again, it was, it was, I wanted to test the capability of it. Um, so the stream was working and I think one fight broke out and I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And then I think later on during the show, I started film, I started filming from next to that camera. Uh, cause before I was filming from like the side and the camera was behind the kit. But so after the first couple of bands, I decided to film from behind the kit next to this camera. And so when the second fight broke out, I was like, you know what? I, I don't need this to be the thing people are talking about on Twitch or on Twitter. So I literally just like covered the lens with it, with the, with the lens cap. I was like, you know what? Just going to, we're just going to black this out. Uh, obviously I'm going to keep rolling on my normal camera, but I don't need this live stream right now. Like I don't need the headache that's going to come out from this. You know, that night I was, um, just laying in bed and I, I saw 
uh, somebody tweet about it and I was like, I hate five, six on Twitch. I'm curious. So I went and checked it out and I was able to catch, uh, the Queensway set and the sanction set. And I, I was just laying in bed and I'm like, this is so weird because I'm like peering into this like live hardcore show. And I, I, I thought it was cool that like, you know, um, it seemed like people didn't really, uh, care or notice that, that the camera was there. People were still, you know, going off as if it was just a normal hardcore show um and I, I could understand people like you know want to criticize um and say like oh like you know people aren't going to shows because they can just watch it on stream which which i think is so weird because i, I feel like if you're gonna go to gonna go to a show you're gonna go you're not gonna you're just gonna stay go, at home not gonna yeah um, i think i think people i think people who are willing to wait for i mean there's obviously people who can't physically go to shows because of family constraints or physical ailment yeah um that's not who I'm, who I'm talking about here, but I think for someone who's like lazy and like, Oh, I'd rather wait for a video. That's, that's someone who's not going to go to the show regardless. So every time I get that feedback or criticism, I'm like, dude, anyone who's willing to wait for a video and they have the means to go to the show, there's someone, they, they wouldn't go to the show regardless if there was a video or not. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, if I'm debating, like I, I'll probably do more live streams, but it's probably gonna be something that I don't announce until like I'm at the show. Um, okay. And just kind of keep it like, you know, a surprise thing. So we'll see. I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of people were, were really stoked to see it. I wasn't really, ex- I wasn't really sure what the, what the, what the response would be, but I think people were really excited that, um, cause I'm not a gamer, so I don't really know much about Twitch, but I know that a lot of gamers who are in hardcore were like so stoked to see like a show pop up on Twitch. So that was, it was cool. Yeah, I was stoked and like I'd never seen like a show, um, you know, live like that, especially in Baltimore. So I, I definitely thought it was cool. And I, I remember um, it was like shortly after that um, you were at the backtrack show. And I remember, like you know, asking if there was going to be like a live stream and it didn't happen. But I was just like, dang, like that would have been cool to, to see like yeah. another show on live stream. Yeah. I remember you were asking me. So I, I actually asked the band, I was like, Hey, like I had this new setup. I did a test, like a live stream works. Do you want it? And they, they were like, actually, no, we kind of want to keep it, uh, keep it just intimate. I said, okay, that's cool. And I think that's a, that's a decision for the, for a band. Um, and as I'm doing more and more stuff, I'm, I'm trying to, um, make sure I respect what a band wants. Um, and especially if it's a band's last show, like they want to keep it just like the people in the room and they want, obviously there's going to be the official video, um, that's going to come out, but I, you know, I, I, I floated the idea. I was like, this is possible. If you, if you want me to do it, I'm down. And they said, it's a cool idea, but like, we're going to keep, we want to keep it as is. So I, uh, I respected that. Cause again, there's, there's, I think there's a lot that you, no one ever wants a fight to break out or something to happen. And God forbid something does happen and it's live stream. Like that puts, that puts people that puts the venue that put the, puts the band at risk. And I think that, um, that's something that needs to be considered when doing some of these things for sure. Yeah, especially like um, since it's like kind of like a, a new space, like it hasn't like it's not it's not a thing that people do live stream like hardcore shows. So we do have to kind of like, I guess, take a step back and like consider like all aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So um, January 2020, I, I know you're traveling. Um, do you have any plans for the rest of the year. Cause, like, cause I know like I, I look at like, you know, I, I know you, you filmed this as hardcore, but I feel like there's other fests throughout the year that pop up and there are people that film there, but not at the quality that you do. Um, and I was just curious, ha- have you ever tried to um, move into new markets and do other fests or do you have plans to go to, to any new fests in 20- 2020? 
Yeah. So in 2019, I did a bunch of fests like in across the U.S. I think I think a lot of them are hoping to bring me back out this year. So it depends on scheduling. Um, I'm trying to do something later in the spring. Uh, I can't really say much about it right now because it's it's still kind of in the oven. But if that goes through, I might be out of commission for for a little bit while I focus on that. Um, but I think I'll I'll largely um, schedule permitting. I'll probably do all the same fests that I did last year. Um, in terms of new fests, besides invasion, I think some, some are reaching out to me. Uh, it's at a point where I'm willing to do any fest. It just comes down to the promoter reaching out to me and seeing if we can find a way to make it work. And it, it really comes down to availability, um, whether they're okay with how I structure things. Um, if they want like multiple cameras, like there's different types of production that need to be factored in, but, uh, I'm always down to shoot new fests. It's just a matter of one. Um, am I wanted there? And two, is it possible for me to, to fit that in based off of, um, my current, current like schedule? Okay. Yeah. Cause I would love to, cause there's like, and I don't want to like name any fest like right now, I, um, on air, but there's at least some fests where like I watch, like I'm, I'm guessing it's their guy. Uh, and I, I just like look at the quality and I just, I, I always picture I'm like, man, I, I wonder how Sonny would do in, in this market. <laughs> cause just some yeah. of these videos are just like, yeah. Like, and like, I, I love like good quality stuff and there's just, um, I don't know with, uh, these other people, there's just certain little things that bother me, but obviously like, I'm not going to go out and trash their hard work. Cause obviously it's cool that they're doing that for their scene and for that fest. Um, so I, I'm never going to, um, speak bad about it, but I, I sometimes, sometimes I just wish hate five, six was there to take care of business. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Like I said, everyone, everyone has their own style and approach to filming and it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative and humble that people, um, like the style the approach that I take to these things. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I, I definitely want to do more. It's always just a matter of, um, budgeting my time and balancing because things are growing so fast and I'm like, I need, again, going back to the whole idea, the whole discussion about the, the size of the queue. It's like, I mean, this year alone, I filmed 700 videos, 700 sets. And no, I think more than that. I think I, I uploaded 700 videos this year. And last year I uploaded like 500. So I've already done 200 more. So it's just a matter of, okay, how much more can I do without this like exploding? Cause like, again, there's a certain growth rate that I'm trying to follow and, um, it has to kind of stay within those parameters. Otherwise it all risks like blowing up in my face. And have you ever thought about um, like venturing into like uh, any other t- types of music, like pop punk? Because I know there's like some bands from your area um, that are like bigger, like the Wonder Years. Have you ever thought about doing stuff like that or have you ever been approached? Yeah, I mean, I actually started out filming pop punk. Like, th- I don't think any of this stuff is on Hate by Six, but like in high school, when I first started filming pre Hate by Six, like a lot of those bands were pop punk, indie, ska, like just non hardcore in general. Um, I'm starting to get asked to do more hip hop here and there. I just did like JPEG mafia and then, um, others are starting to like inquire about it. So I'm always down to film anything. Like I just love filming live music regardless of what it is. I think every, every genre poses, poses its, its own challenges with how to film it live and how to capture it live. Um, so I'm totally down. Um, my dad is like, you need to start filming country. You need to start filming. This is that is like, well, I can't just go to a country show with my camera. Like I need to build up a rapport. And so I think that, um, for some of these other areas, like I would need help breaking into, like I could probably reach out to some certain pop punk, pop punk fans at this point and get clearance to do it. But, um, 
it definitely helps when, when fans are tweeting at the band being like, Hey, let hate by six film. Like that's actually opened a lot of doors for me when fans of certain bands in, in other genres are like pushing for me. Cause that shows the artists or shows whoever it is that's going to make the decision that, Oh, it's actually worthwhile to have Sonny come out and do this. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be done properly. And it's going to, it's actually going to, it's going to help everyone who wants this content done. So um, I'm not opposed to it. It's just a question of how do I get there to do it? Well, Sonny, I want to thank you for your time. This definitely means a lot to me because uh, I've had you on, on my radar for a really long time. And I was just really happy that you were really prompt and um, getting back to me when I asked you to come on. So it definitely means a lot to me. And I, I just I'm, I'm really um, appreciative of you coming on and giving me your time. Dude, thank you so much. It's, it's an, it was an honor to talk to you. All right. Um, before we sign off, is there anything you want to shout out or plug? Um, yeah, if you, if you're, if you've never heard of hate by six, it's, uh, the word hate, the number five, the word six on all social media, um, hate by six is member driven. So, uh, I am now doing hate by six full time. Uh, if you've listened, if you listen to this full discussion, uh, you probably could tell that I used to work in tech. Um, I'm no longer working in tech. I'm now doing hate by six full time. And I rely on viewer support to do that. Um, viewer support is optional, but it's done through Patreon, patreon.com slash hate by six. Um, your support has allowed me to go from filming 200 videos a year to 700, which is crazy. Um, it's what allowed me to film all the half heart shows. So your support matters. And in exchange for your support, you get early access to like drum cams, the rewind band interviews. You have the ability to vote for what videos come out every day and things like that. So hate five, six is entirely community driven. So if you like what I'm doing, you want to support what I'm doing, please consider signing up on Patreon. Um, there's a merch store linked on the site everything like that. Um, but yeah, follow hate by six and hopefully you find some new bands. All right. There you guys have it. This has been another episode of the Jamie K podcast. Always on top.